0: This morning's scripture reading is taken from the 10th chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 24, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. War to you, Cheruzin, The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are their eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me.
1: God and Father, speak to us your words through your word. Help us to grow through it, to be more like Jesus and more faithfully serve him, to understand you more, to love you more fully. Be with us, though we're sinners, as we sit under its authority, and me, though I am a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you've gotten what seemed like bad news but you came to realize that it was actually great news? A situation where you're told something that you don't want to hear but you realize as time goes on that it's actually a blessing? I was thinking about for example in college i remember there was a semester when there was a class that i thought would be really awesome and i really wanted to get into and i had to like move stuff around and do a bunch of stuff to get into it and i was going to be taking 18 credit hours i was going to be busy but anyway i found out last minute that because of some scheduling stuff i wasn't going to be able to take this class and i remember being bummed out and frustrated but then a month later a few weeks into the semester as I realized that actually, I was still taking a full class load, and some of these classes were harder than I expected them to be. the man, that was, it was great that I wasn't able to get into that, that extra class because I would have just been overwhelmed. It seemed like bad news at the time, but I came to realize that actually it was a blessing. Our story today is kind of interesting because it's very similar to a story that we preached through a few weeks ago. The beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to go to towns up in the north in Galilee and proclaim the kingdom and heal. And here at the beginning of Luke 10, as Jesus is now moving south towards Jerusalem, he sends out 72 of his followers to go into the surrounding towns and proclaim the good news of the kingdom and heal. And in the big picture, the point of both of these passages is... Similar, that God is on a mission, God calls us to be his ministers in the world, to be on that mission, and to go and share his hope and bless and minister to people in his name. But what's different about this passage is that we get some extra details, some extra teachings of Jesus that try to highlight certain things about that call to be on God's mission, to be ministers of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, rather than telling the story as a whole, what I want us to do is focus on some of those additional teachings. And in particular, on a couple of ways that I feel like Jesus says says things that are hard for us to hear that sound like bad news in some ways, but that as we really come to understand them as his followers, are wonderful news indeed. So we're going to just look at two of those. And the first one is that I think Jesus would want to tell us that God's mission doesn't depend on you. God's mission does not depend on you. Pick up in verse 21. The 72 have come back, and it says, In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So I want to just say up front that what we're about to dive into is a hard topic. And so hang with me for a few minutes because we're going to look at the stuff in this passage that's connected to it, and then we'll zoom in or zoom out and talk a little more fully about it. But notice two things about what Jesus's prayer here is saying. First, it's making clear what makes the ultimate difference between someone who comes to know God and someone who doesn't. What makes the ultimate difference is whether God chooses to reveal himself to that person. So he hides himself from the wise and understanding, but he chooses to reveal himself to these little children, by which Jesus is talking about the disciples, highlighting their um, humbleness and weakness in the world. That no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father to that Jesus is saying is what makes the difference in terms of why some people hear the gospel and believe and some people refuse to believe. And the second thing to notice about what Jesus says there is that Jesus sees that as an embodiment of what the Bible means by the idea of grace. He says that this is God's gracious will. And To understand what Jesus is saying, the way to understand it is to think about this. Imagine two people, right? Two people hear the good news of Jesus's kingdom, and one of them believes in it, and one of them doesn't. Here's the question. What makes the difference? What makes the difference between one person believing and one person not? On some level, what many of us seem to actually think is what makes the difference is something within those people, That one of the people is smarter or more moral or more open-minded or something like that. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he talks about the wise and understanding. That that we might think that it's something in one of those people, but the problem with that is that if that's what makes the difference, then it's not grace that saves us. Because in some sense, it's that one person is more worthy, more deserving. It's something about that person that results in them receiving salvation. Instead, Jesus is saying that what makes the difference between those two people is that God chooses to reveal himself to one of those people and not to the other. And hence, it's an act of grace that the person that God reveals himself to is no better, no smarter in any way than the person who doesn't believe. Again, like we said, that's hard. And we have questions about that idea. And we're going to come back to that in a couple minutes. But let's notice a few other things in the passage connected to that as well. Second, if you jump up to Luke's uh, 10, 16, it says, "'The one who hears you, hears me, "'and the one who rejects you, rejects me, "'and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me.'" So that's important. As Luke is sending these people out to preach, he's making clear that if, the question is that God reveals himself to these people, but how does God reveal himself? The answer to that is through us. That we speak the gospel and that Jesus speaks through us. And so the way that God is revealed to the world does involve us sharing Jesus with people. And that's important to say because what we just said might make it sound like we're saying, well, then we don't have a place in this story and our ministry doesn't matter. And that's not the case. Jesus is making very clear in this text that our ministry is the means through which God works but our ministry is not the thing on which God depends. So there's a real hope that Jesus has that God is working through us and our ministry. And so that means that we should have a real hope that there are people that we meet who God is revealing himself to and will reveal himself to through us. In, in verse 5, the, it's whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. So the idea there is that God is working and drawing people and preparing people in the world to hear the good news that the disciples proclaim. And so when they show up in these towns, it's not that they have to persuade people to show them hospitality or be open to the gospel. Jesus is saying, you're going to meet people, these sons and daughters of peace, who God is at work in and drawing to himself. All you have to do is find them. And at the same time, that sense that God is the one working to reveal himself is a comfort when we face rejection. Verse 10, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come here. Rejection is hard. It's emotionally hard, it makes us question ourselves, but what Jesus is doing is giving a comfort with those words to his disciples, that rejection is not something, because God's mission doesn't depend on them, rejection is not something that they then have to internalize and take as a judgment on that mission. I I love how he says, what you say is the kingdom of God has come near." And that's a way of expressing, that's our job, right? Our job as Jesus' disciples is to bring the kingdom near to people. In our actions of love, in our words of truth, to bring the kingdom near to people, but our job is not to make them respond in a certain way. God's mission does not depend on us. So like I said, we see that theme in the text and, Again, like I said, in some ways that sounds like bad news or hard news up front, and we're going to get to why it's a blessing. But first, let's make sure we just spell out theologically the way the Bible processes this idea. So what is Jesus saying on that theological level? Well, first, Scripture says we are trapped in sin. Sin is our rebellion against God, both our acts of disobedience and our failure to do the good that he created us to do. And sin is not just a thing in our actions, but it exists in our hearts, and it's something that traps us. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that there aren't people trapped in sin who don't still do good things, but rather it's that, one, those good things cannot make up for the fact that they're also in rebellion against God, and two, that even those good things get warped by the fact that we're not doing them for the glory of God. So we're trapped in sin. And that means that no matter how smart we are, we are still trapped. No matter how disciplined we are, we are still trapped. No matter our family or our nation or whatever, all of us are trapped in sin. And so the only way for us to escape from that trap of sin is by God to do a supernatural work in our hearts to rescue us through this supernatural work that he does. It's what Jesus means in places like John 3 when he talks about being born again. It's what the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah means when he talks about how God is going to take out our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. It's what the Apostle Paul means when he said that we were dead in the trespasses in which we once walked, but that God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. That Because we're trapped, we will not, left to ourselves, ever escape our sin. That God has to come and rescue us from our sin and set us free. Up to now... I think that's all stuff that we kind of are willing to acknowledge as Christians. If you've spent some time with the Bible, that probably makes sense to you. But now here's the hard part. Biblically, in scripture, that supernatural work is not something that God does in every human heart. That's the hard part. But Jesus flat out says it in our passage that he is revealing himself to these little children, but also that he is hidden from the wise and understanding. He makes it even more explicit in other places. For example, in John 6, Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. Why not? This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, this is a hard idea, even though there's a number of places that scripture says it. And so... Let me just say a couple of things about that. First of all, part of why that is hard for us is because we have the wrong intuitions about what is natural and what is exceptional for people. About what is natural and what is exceptional. Here's what I mean. When we hear that, what I think we first think is, does that mean that someone is seeking to believe in Jesus, seeking to trust in him, see, truly seeking from the heart to know him and that he's going to keep them from believing? No, absolutely not. That is not what Jesus is saying when he says this. But that's because Jesus would insist that the only way that someone would be seeking to know God is if God had already done that supernatural work in their heart. That if we were still trapped in sin, none of us would seek after God. That what is natural for us is unbelief. And that it takes this exceptional, supernatural work of God for anyone to believe. What's surprising in the biblical story is not that we're in rebellion against God, not that we reject him. What's surprising is that God works in such a way that millions of people are nonetheless drawn to himself and saved. A second observation about that hard idea is that when we talk about that reality, we need to remember that we're talking about God's perspective and not ours. That God is at work revealing himself to people does not seem that he will reveal himself to everybody, but that is not something that you can see from the outside. You cannot tell whether that supernatural heart changed has happened to somebody. You can't even completely tell that it's happened for yourself. You can have a real assurance um, over time walking with Jesus, but, but even there you have to recognize that you can be fooling yourself. And certainly when it comes to others, you can never judge the state of their hearts. And even more than that, um, I mean, just because God hasn't done that work in someone's heart yet does not mean that he won't. You can't take any given moment in time and assume that therefore God is not going to work at some point in the future, that kind of supernatural heart change. So we need to remember that in terms of how we interact with the world, we ought never try to sort people into those buckets. This is talking about A deep reality of the heart and of God's purposes, not something that I can observe. But, those things being said, this is still a hard teaching of the Bible, isn't it? And ultimately, the only thing I can tell you about it is that God is God. And that means that when it comes to why he works in certain ways, we don't really get all the answers. Here's how scripture proceeds. It says, look, you can know that God is good, deeply good. You can know that because he chooses to show us mercy upon mercy, despite the fact that we rebel against him and spit on his honor and destroy his world. You can know that God is deeply good because of the fact that he, he tries to move towards us even though we're in rebellion against him in relationship. And he reveals himself to us and he wants to know us and be known by us. We can know that he is deeply good because he came as one of us in Jesus Christ and because he suffered and died so that we, his enemies, might be made his friends. For all those reasons, you can know that God is deeply good. But God's deep goodness does not remove the fact that he is also far beyond us. That we have ample evidence to know his goodness, but there are plenty of times that he does not explain himself. That he could not explain himself to his creatures. If you don't struggle at times with God, if there are not things about him that are hard for you, then friend, I just invite you to consider whether you're really worshiping the God of the Bible. A God who you get to kind of sit in judgment over and be cool with everything he does is a God that you know fully. So is not the true God that we worship. And so this is going to be hard. The God saves many people, millions and billions of people, but he doesn't save everyone. And surely he could have, but he doesn't. And that is a challenging teaching. So just to summarize what Jesus is saying, our hearts are hard and unbelieving, faith takes a supernatural work of God in those hearts, and God is working and giving life and calling people to trust in him, but it is up to him who is actually drawn to himself. Here's the thing I wanna say Then coming out of that, as we think about our lives and that, that's a hard teaching like I said. But friend, that is also an incredibly freeing and empowering teaching if you really internalize it and think about it in the right way. Because that's the reason we can ultimately say that God's mission, your work of ministry, it doesn't depend on you. First of all, that is good news because the fact that God's mission doesn't depend on you means that you can do the work of ministry. You, regardless of who you are, that what makes the difference in somebody's life is not how educated you are. What makes the difference in someone's life is not how gifted you are. What makes the difference is not your level of moral perfection or your relational consistency or your eloquence. Now, look. All of those things are good and God often blesses us as we steward the gifts that he gives us and God can use those things. I'm not saying that those things are bad, but God does not need any of those things to work in someone's life. It is his choice to move by his spirit and to reveal himself through you. And so you can be the the most gifted, smartest person in the world and see no fruit if God doesn't choose to work. And you can be a nobody and have God richly bless your work of ministry. And that means that you don't have to sweat your inadequacies, you can do the work of the kingdom. I've told this story once before, but my favorite illustration of that is the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. So Charles Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher of the 1800s. He was um, world renowned, loved Jesus deeply. I, I love Charles Spurgeon. And he was certainly a gifted, eloquent guy, and God blessed those gifts. But I love the story of how he became a Christian. So Charles Spurgeon is a young man, and he's not a believer. I mean, he lives in Victorian England, so he like goes to church sometimes and stuff, but he in no way knows Jesus from the heart. And he one Sunday, there's this really famous, gifted, revivalist preacher in town, and so Charles Spurgeon decides he's gonna go here and preach. And he gets in his wagon to leave, but there had been this freak snowstorm And as a result, his wagon gets stuck, like halfway to hear the guy. And so Spurgeon is like, well, I can't go see this guy, but it's Sunday morning and standing around outside looks kind of bad. So there's this little church nearby and Spurgeon just goes into that church to be warm and attend a church service. And because of the snowstorm, the pastor of that church could not even come that morning. Um, so it's just one of the one of the elders, one of one of the lay leaders of the church, gets up without preparation and preaches this sermon. And the sermon text is Isaiah forty five twenty two: Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. He just reads that text and then basically he looks up the congregation and says, "Friends, look to the Lord your God and be saved." And then he looks up in the balcony at Spurgeon and he says, young man, look to the Lord and be saved. And in that moment, Spurgeon said, his heart is broken open and he has this vision of Jesus Christ and he's drawn to the Lord and comes to know him. But it was not the, the, the great gifted revivalist preacher that brought Spurgeon to faith. It was this stuttering guy giving, basically just repeating this Bible verse while looking at Spurgeon, but the Lord chose to work and so Spurgeon was saved. And friend, you can be an agent of that kind of work of God. Here's the second way that recognizing that the mission doesn't depend on us is freeing. It's that that means that you get to go into the world and instead of starting the labor you get to go see where God is already at work. Because God is at work in the world. That's part of what scripture teaches us. He is at work in people's lives. And so what what we are called to do is to look around and say we have the opportunity to find out what God is doing and to be a part of that. I should say there's this idea that some people seem to get, that when we say that it doesn't ultimately depend on us, that that's going to somehow discourage us from sharing Jesus with other people. And that sort of sounds right to some people, but if you think about it, that's crazy. Because you know what's discouraging? It's thinking that it does depend on you. Instead, no, it's like those disciples. They just go out and discover these children of peace, these people of peace that God has already been working in and that God is drawing to himself. And they get to just find them. The hope we have is that God is moving in the world and he will draw people and we get to be a part of it. Think about it like this. If God isn't at work, if God's not the one ultimately in control, then it's sort of like, imagine that you come over to my house and I hand you a metal detector, and I just say, hey, here's a metal detector, why don't you go find some treasure? And so you just go kind of walk around the backyard and swing it around a little bit, and you don't find anything, and what, I don't know, 15 minutes later, half an hour later, if you're persistent, you're going to give up, right? Because you're going to think, well, I guess there's nothing there to find. But knowing that God is at work in the world already, means instead that it's like I handed you a metal detector and I said, here's the deal, I buried some treasure in my backyard. Multiple pieces of treasure. Go find it and that's going to completely change your posture isn't it because you're not going out there uncertain about what the outcome will be you know that that there's treasure there to find and you're going to diligently seek to find it and i think that's why what jesus says to his disciples when he sends them out is he says the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest the harvest is plentiful We simply get to go pick what God has planted. And the last reason that all of this, I think, is actually deeply freeing and encouraging to us is because the fact that God is the one who ultimately makes the difference means that there is no one that you should give up hope on. There is no person that you should give up on. The real reason some of us struggle with the reality that God has to reveal himself to people and that he doesn't reveal himself to everyone. The real reason some of us struggle, I think, is because we're not really invested in people in general, but it's a specific person that our heart goes out to. A child, or a spouse, or a parent, or a friend. And our struggle is with the fact, with that question of, is God going to reveal himself to them? And a couple of things need to be said about that. First of all, I just want to stress that we, we, we first of all should not give up hope because as we said earlier, just because God has not done that work yet does not mean that he won't. <laughs> I mean, that that's the trap you can fall into first of all, right? And, and in fact, there's good reason to be hopeful that he will um, because he's put you in that person's life. I mean, already it seems like he's already put at least one person that cares for that person and longs for them to know Jesus in relationship with them. So on that level, there's a real reason to be hopeful that God will work in them. But on a deeper level, here's the other side of all of that. No one is too far away, too sinful, too hard-hearted that God could not today break through and reveal himself to them. No matter how much that person that's on your heart is resistant, you can always have deep hope in the fact that God is stronger than their hearts. I know people and care about people. That the truth is, if I'm really honest, were it up to me, there would be no hope that they would come to know Jesus. I've tried all my best arguments. I've tried to to show them love in the ways I best know how. I've tried to communicate the gospel to them, and nothing has changed. My hope is that, praise the Lord, it is not those efforts, it is not my strength that's going to make the difference. And so I don't know what God is doing, and I wrestle with him in prayer for those people, and that's a good thing to, to do. I still have deep hope that the Lord can save them. So all of that together is our first big idea, which is hard, but is also in many ways good news, that God's mission doesn't depend on us. The other truth I want us to see is that God's mission doesn't define you. It does not define you. For that to make sense, because that might sound kind of strange, pick up in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So this is the 72 coming back from their missionary trip and they are pumped. They've seen miraculous healings and even demons being cast out. Um, and they, they've really seen the Lord at work. Just a note on that, when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, we, because you might think that that's a strange phrase. Just to clarify, that is actually not about what I think most of us think of. We've all been trained by John Milton to read verses like this. He's the guy who wrote Paradise Lost centuries ago um, as about some ancient fall of Satan before history. And that's a whole nother discussion. But that's almost certainly not what Jesus is talking about here. Because in the Old Testament, Satan is pictured as in heaven. As appearing in the divine courtroom. In fact, pretty much whenever he appears in Job chapter 1, in 1 Kings 22, in Zechariah 3, he's pictured as in heaven. And so when the point at which Satan is cast down from heaven is not at some ancient time in the past, but rather it's when Jesus dies and is risen from the dead. So for example, John 12, Jesus prophesies his death and resurrection. And then he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And so Satan is cast down. He's defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus says this because he recognizes the 72, even though the the final victory hasn't been won, the 72 that went out are beginning to experience the triumph that Jesus worked, that his power working through them means that they're starting to see that victory embodied in the world. And so he recognizes that they're excited by this and the power, but then he gives them this warning in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in heaven. That is an image of citizenship and relationship. It means we have a new citizenship, a new identity as God's people in God's kingdom. But even more than that, it means we have a new relationship with God. That God is pictured as writing our names on his hand to, to remember us because of our closeness to his heart. And so Jesus is saying, yes, it's exciting, this spiritual victory, but that should not be the thing that you rejoice in. What should really excite you what should really cause your heart to rejoice is the new citizenship and relationship you have with God. We see the same kind of theme in verse 23. It says, turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So what's Jesus talking about? What's the thing the disciples have heard and seen? Well, it's clear from what comes just before that set of verses that Jesus is talking about the fact that they have seen Jesus, the Son of God, and that through him they have seen the Father. That what matters is not the miracles they've seen, the great successes they've seen in ministry. What matters is that they have seen and know Jesus. That is the thing that all the great men of history longed to experience and didn't. So what's Jesus trying to say with these comments? I think one of the great dangers we face when we are on God's mission is that it can become our identity, meaning that the way we understand ourselves and view ourselves and judge ourselves is based not on God, but on the mission. And that's a problem for two reasons. It's a problem because when we are experiencing failure on God's mission, that it destroys our sense of who we are. I think a huge source of spiritual discouragement for many of us is the fact that we have let our identity rest on the mission. If you think about parenting, for example... And to be clear, when we talk about the mission of God, we don't mean just like big, sexy, exciting stuff. I mean, things like you're like raising your children, loving your children, teaching them to know and follow Jesus. That's the core of your mission if you have kids. But something like parenting, the thing about it is that there are days when it's going badly, right? When your kids are just wild and nothing you say is working and they're throwing stuff at each other and yelling. In those days, how do you perceive yourself? Often what we conclude is not just, I'm having a rough day, but I'm a failure as a parent. I'm a failure as a Christian. I'm a failure as a human being. And when we do that, that means we've let our identity as a Christian and as a parent rest on the mission. We have defined ourselves based on how it is going. And that can be true in other areas as well, right? When we're trying to help a struggling person and they don't seem to get better, when we try to share the hope of Jesus with someone and they don't seem to listen, we can say, I am somehow a failure. That is who I am. But you know what? It's even more dangerous. It's even more dangerous to let our identity be tied up with the mission when we succeed. When you're parenting and you're having a good day and the kids seem obedient and attentive and spiritually open and you say, see, I'm a great parent, I'm a success. That's actually really dangerous. First, because it can blind us to the issues that we still have. I mean, nothing hides problems like success. Nothing hides sin like seemingly being able to to, to outwardly have it all together. And so it can blind us to our issues. But it's dangerous at a deeper level because that sense of successfulness leads to spiritual pride and taking credit for things that we do not deserve credit for. Remember what we spent the first half of the sermon saying, that God is the one that determines the outcomes of our work. That is true with your children, that is true with your friends, that is true for the church in the world, that all of the credit for the outcome always is owed to God. And when we succeed, if we've let our identity be tied up in our mission, then we can begin to actually take that credit for ourselves. You, you see a hint of that, I think, in, in verse 17. Let me read it again. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Pay attention to how they frame it. They're not all wrong. They have that in your name. They recognize that Jesus is involved, but it's still them that they think is the, you know, the demons are subject to them. Which is, of course, not true. The demons are subject to Jesus, to God. (laughs) He's the one with authority in this. The disciples are nobodies that Jesus is working to. And you can already see that spiritual pride creeping in. So we must not let our mission define our identity. What should define us instead? Well, Jesus has told us it's that our names are written in heaven. It's that we have the blessing of knowing Jesus and the Father through him. Here's the danger. In the world, in every worldly religion, in every worldly way of living, we have this tendency to to make our mission and the way the mission is going into our identity. That what we do is the thing that defines who we are. And so when we do things that are good or righteous or successful, then we say, I am therefore good and righteous and successful. And when we do things that are sinful or wrong or cause us to fail, then we start to see that as a part of ourselves as well. In the world, that's always how it works, that what you do defines who you are. But in Christianity, who we are always defines what we do that you are good and you are righteous and you are successful not because of anything that you're doing. You are good and you're righteous because Jesus is good and righteous and he chooses to call you that way, to, to, to view you that way. That, that That's part of his work is that we actually have his righteousness. Jesus's identity before the father becomes your identity before the father by God's grace through faith in the moment you believe. And On your best day, you are no better than that. And on your worst day, you are no worse than Jesus's perfect righteousness. And then it is out of that identity, out of who we are, that we are called to the mission of God. That because he has made us righteous, we're called to seek righteousness. Because he has rescued and saved us, we are called to then, out of that new identity, proclaim his mission to others. But that is so deeply freeing because it means that when the mission is going great, we can simply say, to God be the glory, because that in no way makes me any greater than I already was. And when the mission is going terribly, we can say, to God be the glory, I am still loved and perfect and um, and delighted in Because of the victory of Jesus Christ. So, friends, here is the good news God's mission does not depend on you. God's mission does not define you. Instead, God's mission depends on God, and God defines you. And so you can rest in Him and find freedom in those truths, and out of that, minister to the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have not revealed these things only to the wise and the understanding, but to we little children you have chosen to make yourself known. I pray, Father, that we would be faithful in seeking to pursue the work of ministry in the world. We would be on your mission in the world, showing your love, serving people, proclaiming your gospel, building up your kingdom in the world, bringing you near to people, but that we would do it with the hope that it is your work that makes the difference, and with the understanding that it is not our work that makes us any any better, any more delightful, any more loved in your sight, that you love us because of Jesus. You will work through us by the power of Jesus Christ. Give us the confidence that comes from those realities that we might be your
0: ministers.
1: We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.